Okay, let's go ahead and get started. And um, uh, for those that are live streaming, I just want to make a couple of quick uh, announcements and then we'll uh, dive in. So for those of you that are watching, uh, uh, those of you that are here, just bear with me while I kind of go through this real quick. Um, so we wanted to mention, first of all, that the latest culture shock just dropped today. So if you keep up with that series, this is the 12th and that culture shock is a 10 to 12 minute video that I do about every two weeks dealing with cultural issues. And so this one just came out today and I called it the experts. And if you're interested in that, you can go to notbyworks.org and just click on videos and then culture shock and all 12 of them will be there. And then also want to mention, especially for those of you here on our Wednesday night, we've not talked about it, or those of you watching online, that there's a great conference coming up the end of May. It's an annual conference called the Mid-America Prophecy Conference. It's always in Tulsa every year. Uh, this year it's May 28th and 29th. And I've been speaking at it the last several years, but Dr. Woods will be there, Tommy Ice, Dave Reagan, and, uh, another guy named Damon, Damon Duck fantastic conference. It's all day Friday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. and 9 a.m. to 1.30 on Saturday. It's at the Marriott Southern Hills in Tulsa. Great hotel, great facilities, great conference center. So if you have nothing better to do this summer and you want to take a quick four-day getaway, it's drivable in one day. We do it every year. Um, love to have you come to that. If you want more details, just go to the Not By Work site and I link you to the conference website where you can find out all the details. All right, with that, I want to shift before we start tonight talking more about what the gospel is not. I uh, had a great question before we got started tonight and wanted to take the opportunity to kind of share my thoughts on that with everybody else. So let me call up the Bible on the screen for those watching the live stream and for you guys for that matter. Uh, let's see here. There we go. All right, so let me make that a little bit bigger for those of you here. Is that any better? All right. So the question was about, that. What, what prompted the question was someone was asking about Romans 1.7, which you see on the screen here. I'll highlight it in green. Um, so they were asking about the last part of that verse where it says, called to be saints. What you're looking at is the New King James. Um, and uh, I can show it to you in other, ver in other uh, versions as well. But anytime you have an English translation that is a, what, what we might commonly call a word-for-word -word translation, the, t the technical term for that is a formal equivalent, where they do their best to translate you know, each word with a, in Greek with an English word. Whenever you have an English translation that's, that's a word-for-word -word translation, Anytime they have words that are not in the original Greek, they will be in italics. So you see how that 2B right there is in italics? That means those words are not in the original Greek. So, of course, we know the Bible was written, the New Testament was written originally in Greek. So every English translation, and of course there are dozens and dozens of them now, every English translation is a translation from the Greek. Okay? So I typically teach and preach from the New King James translation. And uh, a lot of people are very comfortable with the King James because, of course, it was the first English translation that we had for years and years and years that was the most common and popular from the 17th century until the turn of the 20th century. 
Um, but there are others. The New American Standard is an English translation that's a good formal equivalent translation. Um, and and there, are, there are others. But each translation has some unique features, each English translation, that you need to be aware of. So I thought I'd just take a few minutes uh, at the outset of our Wednesday Bible study. We're not on any agenda, even though it's not technically on topic of the gospel, to kind of give you a quick primer on how to choose an English Bible. Let's call it that. So um, in, in the translation uh, process, the first thing that the translators have to decide on is which Greek manuscript are they going to translate from. And after all over 100 years now of what's called textual criticism, which is the science of studying the original manuscripts, we've sort of come to the point where there are essentially two primary Greek manuscripts that we translate from. So let me back up and kind of explain how we got here. Obviously, the Bible, the New Testament, we'll just deal with the New Testament. The New Testament was written entirely in the first century, from roughly 44 A.D., till 95, 96 AD, over a 50-year span. 27 books. Holy Spirit inspired the authors of the New Testament. They wrote as the Holy Spirit carried them along, and we have the original document written on papyrus. And those documents, those original documents, which are called autographs, um, no longer exist today. They, over time, they disintegrated. It's not like the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write, you know, Ephesians, and then it was quickly put into a glass box and sealed away in a perfect, you know, underground storage place, right? It was passed around. They were circular letters. And over time, the original, the autographs, all disintegrated. So what we have in our possession today, here it is the year 2021, and through archaeology and through study, you know, uh, uh, historical uh, searching and so forth, we have accumulated, I haven't checked lately, but it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 6,800, maybe 7,000 manuscript fragments of the New Testament. Now that could be anything from one portion of the Gospel of Luke to an entire, you know, New Testament, what's called codex. A codex just means a bound book like this. So if it's got, if it's bound together, like what we would call a book, it's called a codex. So, but total we have about, let's call it 7,000. Don't quote me on that. It could be more than that. It's been a while since I've looked at it. But so since none of those are stamped autograph, you know, we have to search through them and kind of determine which of those reflect the original. Because what happened over time is scribes took the autographs and made copies. Now, they didn't have Xerox machines. They didn't have digital copies. They couldn't PDF something. They literally had to sit down and copy it. And that process of scribal transmission is, was not immune to mistakes. Okay? So as the scribes copied them, every now and then they would miswrite something. And in uh, my series on how we got our Bible, which is an eight-disc series, I give all kinds of examples of scribal errors. Um, most of them are very obvious to see. Most of them uh, are just the same way we would when you read a book. You know, you pick up almost any book today in English. doesn't matter who the publisher was, and Anne can attest to this. There are going to be typos. The best editors in the world miss things. 
And when you're reading a novel by Tom Clancy and you come across a paragraph where it begins with the word the, but it's spelled T-E-H, it doesn't affect your ability to enjoy or understand the book. You, you can recognize immediately, obviously, that's a typo. They meant T-H-E. They just mistyped it. Now, that's, those kind of typos are pretty rare these days because of technology, but, but in the olden days, they were not uncommon. So, similarly, when the scribes took the original documents of the New Testament and made copies, over time, uh, scribal errors came into play. So, when we say we have, say, 7,000 manuscript fragments today, um, we have to take those, and so we'll say, all the ones that relate to Matthew, we'll stack here. Any manuscript fragments of Mark's gospel, we'll put here. So you have 27 stacks. Then you go through and you compare them. And you will find that uh, there are differences. Now, 90, more than 98%, 98.25, something like that, percent of all the manuscripts of each book agree. So there's only a small percentage of scribal errors, right? And like I said, most of them are obvious you know, what, what was intended. They left out a word by mistake or inserted a word by mistake. Um, so as you begin to translate, uh, let's take the Gospel of Luke since I mentioned that. Let's say you're translating Luke chapter 5. And as you look at all the manuscript fragments we have in our existence, uh, textual critics call that extant, meaning in our possession. We, we There may be a lot more out there and we're just waiting for the archaeologist spade to uncover them in some part of the Holy Land over there. Um, but as far as what we have today, extant, let's say in Luke chapter 5, let's say we have uh, 10 manuscripts uh, that are, are from Luke chapter 5, 10, 10 fragments. But let's say nine of them are identical, but one of them has a slight difference somewhere. Maybe a different word is added. Okay, How do you know which one reflects the original that Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit? Yeah, that's the question, right? And that uh, process of determining which one represents the original is called textual criticism. And it's actually a very fun science, and it's a, a, most of the time it's a pretty easy to discern, uh, but there are a few rare times when you really aren't sure and you have to sort of make some educated guesses. So... Um, over the you know, last hundred years since we started really uncovering a lot more manuscripts, um, they have sort of d divided into two full manuscripts of the New Testament containing all 27 books. And one of those is called the critical text, or sometimes called the Alexandrian text. The other is referred to as the majority text, or sometimes called the... Uh, uh, Byzantine text, because the, the, all those manuscripts tended to generate from around Byzantium. All the ones in the critical text tended to be found around Alexandria. So, uh, so that so so the so you have these two manuscripts uh, of the full New Testament, the critical and the majority. And when you sit down to translate into English, which one are you going to use? Now, every English Bible today except the New King James and the King James, uh, translates from the critical manuscript family. Okay? What they've determined is this is the original after studying the 7,000 manuscripts. The New King James translates from the majority text manuscript family. Um, 
The King James is kind of a different animal. It translates also from manuscripts found around Byzantium, but it translates from a very specific full Greek manuscript of the New Testament that a guy named Erasmus put together and is often referred to as the Textus Receptus or the TR. And it's widely known that the TR that Erasmus put together has some portions of it that are not found in any other of the 7,000 Greek manuscripts except the one that he put together, which tells you, since he didn't put it together until the mid-16th century, 15, I don't know, 50s, something like that, um, then clearly he obviously made that up. He, he didn't copy it from some ancient manuscript. So, and as an example of that, if you look at, I'll put it on the screen here, if you look at um, uh, 1 John, uh, in the King James 5, uh, where it says um, there are three, I'm going to just highlight it so you can see it easier, in verse 7, there are, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That phrase is not found in any Greek manuscript except Erasmus's self-produced manuscript. So it's called the Kama Johannine, the, the John's Kama, he inserted this. John didn't, but Erasmus did. So uh, it's pretty clear that he put that in there to defend the doctrine of the Trinity. Now we don't need that to defend the doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible is pretty clear that God eternally exists in three persons. But anyway, that's just one example of a scribal insertion. Um, so you know, when you have a formal equivalent translation, um, it's whenever there's a omission, where they're, in English, they're inserting words that are not found in the Greek text, they will put them in italics. So if we go back to Romans 1, 7, uh, that's what we have going on here. Called to be saints. Now, why do I prefer the New King James? Well, it's because as I've studied textual criticism, I've come to the conclusion that the majority text family is probably most likely reflects the original. Uh, the Alexandrian or the critical text doesn't. Um, so if, to give you an example, uh, the, the NIV, which besides the fact that it's more of a paraphrase, it also is translated from the uh, critical text family, uh, the Greek text, uh, and it just leaves out a lot of things because the critical text uh, doesn't include them. So let's see, if we go to, let me think of one, I think Acts 8.25 might be one. Nope. Uh, I might have it jotted down here. There's several verses. Anybody have the NIV by any chance tonight? You do? So I'm going to have you look up, if I can find some. Uh, oh, it's 37, Acts 8.37. And anybody have the NASB? So look up Acts 8.37. I'm going to read it. Well, let her, uh, yeah, you read it first, Acts 8.37. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
Okay, so if you look at the screen, I've got the New American Standard on the screen. And see how, I ignore the purple highlighting for a moment. Uh, see how that verse is in brackets? There's a bracket at the beginning and at the end. Do you see that? That's because the critical text, the Greek text, from which the New American Standard was translated, like all other English translations except the New King James, the critical Greek text does not have that sentence. It's not there. So the New American Standard includes it, but they put it in brackets to sort of indicate, and if you have a study Bible, it probably says, well, here, let's look here. Yeah, early manuscripts do not contain this verse. Okay. Now, the NIV, which is translated from the exact same Greek family, what does it say for Acts 8.37? Actually, there isn't an 8.37. So there isn't an 8.37. And you'll find this dozens of times in the NIV. It just goes, in this case, from Acts 8.36 to Acts 8.38. But it isn't they put it in a footnote, and so if you look at the fine print, you'll, you'll find it. But not all NIVs even do that. Only the study Bibles do. So um, now if you think that the Greek manuscript from the critical text, you know, that, that is the original, then you don't have a problem with that because you don't think that's inspired or part of the Bible. I believe in most cases the majority text does reflect the original. And, and so you go to, say, the New King James... And it just puts it right in there. Now it has a note telling you that NU, I'm going to walk over, I know I'm going to be off camera, but I want to be able to show you guys. NU and M, you'll see those all over the place in your Bible's margin. NU is the critical text. M is the majority text. NU stands for Nestle Alon slash UBS, two different Greek translators. Over time, as they studied the manuscripts and those groups that were working on creating an, a full 27-book Greek New Testament based on all the thousands of manuscripts that we have, over time, as those two groups, the Nestle Group and the UBS, which is United Bible Societies, as they were working on translating it, over time, eventually, they kind of compared their results and they were identical. So now they've kind of, in, in text-critical world merged and we just call it the NU or the critical text, the Nestle Alonde UBS uh, text. So, so the New King James, which is what you see on the screen now, tells you, look, the critical text, and it, it even says the majority text, omit verse 37, but it is found in some Western texts, including the Latin tradition. So uh, the King James includes it. So let's look at another one. So just to make the drive the point home if you look at say uh, Matthew 17 21 yeah so uh, what was that again Acts 8 37. Yeah, I chose an unfortunate example because this one's kind of rare. But in this particular case, Acts 8.37 isn't even found in the majority text. It's only found in the Textus Receptus, the King James. Okay, not the New King James. I mean, it's here, but it's, it's just... the. the Neither. So... Uh, uh, again, just think three columns. 
You've got the Greek, I mean, you've got the uh, critical text found around Alexandria, which is what all modern translations are based on, except for the New King James and King James. You've got the majority text, which are manuscripts that were found around Byzantium. That's what the New King James has found. But then you've got this one single uh, manuscript. It's a full codex that a guy named Erasmus created. It's different from both. Yeah, different from both. It, it would be, in, a, in some respects, a subset of the majority text because the manuscripts he was working with were all found in the same geographic region. But it's got some anomalies that are only found in his text. Textus Receptus. Yeah. So, and by the way, that phrase, Textus Receptus, of course, is Latin. It means received text. And in Erasmus's fifth version, because he came up with several over, over a period of years, in his fifth version, I believe it was, I think that's right, uh, the publisher, when they published it, that Greek text, put in the foreword a blurb that said, herein we have the, the received text for one and for all. In other words, this is the official inspired, this is exactly like what God wrote when, he, when the quill hit the sheepskin back in the first century. And so that blurb essentially became shorthand for the, the manuscript of the King James Version. So when you think Textus Receptus, just think KJV, King James Version, TR. Okay. But that's, a, that's kind of a whole separate issue. And I'm, very, I'm not anti-King James at all. I think it's a, gr a great Bible. And if you can understand Elizabethan English, it can be fine. I'm not critical of it. Um, but I don't speak you know, Elizabethan English, and the New King James, I think, kind of cleans up some of the things. Now, the New King James often will, will repeat, just like we see here, a phrase from the King James, just out of respect for it, because it is supposed to be the New King James. But unlike the King James, it's going to let you know, hey, this actually isn't in the majority text, but we're including it in here because the King James did. That's essentially so the NU is the critical. It's a critical. Uh-huh. No, you won't find any notes on that. Yeah. So uh, if we go to, what did I say, Matthew 18, 11? I think that's what I said. Or 17, 21, excuse me. We have another example of this. So someone, you had the New American Standard back there, so why don't you read that? Yep. So once again, you see it's in brackets. And then, Anne, um, you'll find the same thing. It's not there, right? Right in the footnote. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. But in terms of the numbers of verses, it goes from Matthew 17, 20 to 22. Okay. So now, so everybody understands kind of the difference between the critical text and the majority text in terms of Critical text is the basis or the underlying Greek text for the New American Standard, NIV, ESV, all the modern translations. The majority text is the underlying Greek text behind the New King James. Now, what's the difference and why does it matter? So that's where you get into text critical theory and, and the different schools of thought. And so I'll try to explain kind of how, why they arrived at these two different manuscripts today and why I prefer the majority text. And this is a vast oversimplification. I go into a lot more detail in that uh, series. But um, so 
what happened that changed really the, the study of the ancient manuscripts forever was around the end of the 19th century, um, they discovered a perfect Greek codex uh, called uh, Codex Sinaiticus in a, in a shelf, literally, in a library in Alexandria. And it's kind of a funny story how it was discovered. Uh, forget the guy's name that is credited with discovering it, but he was visiting a monastery in Alexandria, and one of the monks was building a fire in a waste paper basket with leaves of an ancient Greek Bible. And this guy goes, wait, what is that? What are you doing? He goes, I'm just building a fire or something. And, and the guy goes, well, don't do that. That's valuable. That's an ancient Greek manuscript. And he goes, oh, don't worry. I got another one just like it. Well, he went and pulled it off the shelf. And it was this very early from third century or so AD. So very close to the original first century is when the Bible was written, the New Testament, in perfect condition, you know, on the shelf. And so he took it and it differed quite a bit from what they had been translating from, which was the, the text from around Byzantium. And so they began to theorize that because it was older, meaning closer to the first century, it probably re reflected the original. And so that sort of began the study of the Alexandrian text family and the underlying premise. This is a simplification, but it's largely true was that the older the manuscript, the more likely it is to, to represent the original. So going back to my analogy of chapter, Luke chapter 10, you have nine manuscripts that are identical, but let's say the oldest ones of those is from the 9th century, so 800 years after it was written. In other words, everything from the autograph up till the 9th century disintegrated and is long gone. But we have nine identical manuscripts of Luke chapter 10, from the ninth century. But that one that's a little different, let's say it goes all the way back to the third century. The critical text theory is going to say, well, that must be the original because it's the oldest. The majority text is going to say, nope, this must reflect the original because we have the most of it. That's why it's called the majority text, right? So as a, as a general you know, rule, and this is a painting with a broad brush, but in general, the majority text advocates, which that is myself, say whatever Greek manuscripts we have the most of probably represent the original because God preserves his word in the majority of the manuscripts, the doctrine of preservation. Critical text advocates tend to lean toward, no, not necessarily whatever we have the oldest because it's closest to the original uh, probably represents the original. So uh, when they found that perfectly, you know, unta untattered, third century manuscript, Codex Sinaiticus, they said, oh, this is the oldest that must, must be the original. The uh, response to that, uh, or the debunking of that theory, would be, no, the early church uh, recognized, because they were very much a, a attentive, even the scribes, you know, had a 99% accuracy rate. I mean, they, they were very attentive to copying, and even though they weren't perfect, they recognize it. So the theory is that early on, when that codex was all bound together and put together, people began to recognize it had a higher percentage of type of typos, we'll call them, and so they shelved it. They didn't want to throw it away because monks and other uh, students of the word professionally 
could benefit from it. Plus, paper was very valuable. They didn't live in a disposable society like we did. So they put it on the shelf to take it out of commission, but they didn't destroy it. But the reason it's in perfect condition is because it was recognized that it wasn't, it had mistakes in it. So, you know, I noticed your Bible, which is like my old Bible at home. This is the one I carry with me to preach in the pulpit because it's thin and, it, and I do everything on PowerPoint. But my Bible that I studied from for years is kind of like yours, tattered and torn and underlined and notes in the margin. And the more you use it, the more it disintegrates. So it, it, in our view, it follows that the most accurate scribal copies were the ones that were used and therefore they disintegrated. The ones that were recognized as having more common mistakes weren't used as widely, so they are in pretty good shape. So that's the kind of the, a short answer to the question of which manuscript is, uh, is which. So when you come to the NIV of, say, you know, this verse, Matthew 17, 18, it's, gonna, it's going to, or Matthew 1721, excuse me. You'll notice here on the screen, let's see if I can make that a little bigger. It goes from 20 right here to 22. There is no 21, right? And this note probably tells you that. Yeah, some manuscripts, meaning the newer ones, the majority text, include, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. It just leaves it out. The New American Standard at least puts it in there, but it puts it in brackets and, and, and alerts you to the fact that uh, early manuscripts, meaning the oldest ones, don't contain it. So we're, not gonna, we're just going to put it in brackets. The New King James, which favors the majority, not the oldest, puts it in here, and uh, it just it mentions that the critical text, remember NU means critical, omits it. So now you, now you kind of know how to do a little bit of textual criticism. Anytime you're reading your English Bible and you see a note that references NU, you say, oh, that's the critical text. And depending on what English version you're using from, it's either going to say it includes it or the majority text omits it or something like that. So, uh, so, when you, so bottom line is when you're choosing an English Bible, you have two factors to consider. The first is what manuscripts are they translating from? Okay. The majority or the critical. And again, King James is in a class by itself. It's sort of a subset of the majority text. But the second question, which in many ways is more important, is what is their translation technique? Are they seeking to reflect the original Greek as close as they can word for word, or are they paraphrasing the, the, the verse? And to me, that's more important. Um, even though the New American Standard translates from the critical text to the extent that they're 98 point something percent identical anyway I'm not too concerned about it and they have the notes to alert you if it happens to leave out a verse um, but more important the New American Standard like the New King James tries its best to translate word for word and the reason that's important is because when you paraphrase while sometimes it can be helpful in, in, in explaining what the verse means when we're reading the Bible, we don't want the Bible, the English translation, to explain what it means. We want us to tell us. We want to tell us what it says. We can we can figure out on our own what it means by going to commentaries and manners and customs books and other Bible tools. Um, 
So an example would be going to the Hebrew. In the Hebrew uh, culture, anger is expressed through a uh, metaphor of the nostrils flaring. So it might say, the king's nostrils flared. What that means is the king got angry, right? Um, just like if we said in English today, you're driving me up a wall, you know, that what that means for those who study English and know the metaphor is you're, you're bothering me, you're frustrating me, you're making me crazy, those kinds of things, right? But when it comes to the Bible, uh, a formal equivalent translation like the New King James or the New American Standard is going to say the king's nostrils flared. And then you're going to, because that's what the text says. And then as you study it, you're going to learn, oh, that's a Hebrew metaphor, he got angry. A paraphrastic translation like the NIV will say the king got angry. Now, no harm, no foul, you might say, because that is what it means. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, every jot and tittle matters. Every word matters. And when you're studying Scripture, you want to look for words that are repeated, and you want to look for themes. And sometimes, especially in the epistles, an author will bookend a particular section with a key word. And, and if you're dealing with a paraphrase, you're going to miss that. And so for study, you want a formal equivalent translation. And then uh, for devotional reading or, you know, something, you know, you might use a commentary or an NIV or something like that that's going to give you a more paraphrase, right? Um, the other problem with paraphrases is they don't translate the same word the same way every time. Um, so, you know, since the Bible wasn't written in English, if I do, let's, let's see if we can uh, give an example of this. Let's say, let me pick a word here in the New King, uh, or let's just use the... NIV for illustration purposes. Let's say um, the word, uh, I'm going to find a good word here that will illustrate this. Um, well, uh, let's try betrayed. Okay. So if I look up the word betrayed here and I say, find me every occurrence of that Greek word. make sure that's showing on the screen. Yep, for those at home. All right. So that Greek word that was translated betrayed in that verse is the word paradidomi, which is this word right here in the middle. It's used 119 times in the Greek New Testament. But look how many different ways the NIV translates it. So hand over. If I click on that, 20 of the 119 usages of paradidomy, it's translated hand over instead of bring, or instead of betray. Uh, 38 of the 119 times it's translated betrayed. Now you would have no way of knowing when looking at your NIV that the word betrayed is the same exact word that's, that's translated hand over in a different verse. But it is, exact same Greek word. Because being a paraphrase, they're not concerned with consistency. They translate it however they want. Turned over, committed, gave, delivered, entrusted, you know. Now, if we do the same thing in the New King James, the word wheel is going to be quite different. Still be some differences because they're not 100% going to be consistent. But 
Uh, that's not the right one. Where was uh, 22? So 1722. Uh, betrayed. I could have done this a little bit different, but this will work. And so, well, we do see that was probably a bad example because paradidomy has such a range of meaning. But, um, but anyway, it's used, notice, 121 times. The other one was 119. That's because the New King James is based on the majority text. So there are a couple of places where it uses the word paradidomy and the NIV doesn't. Um, so that was, I, I was just shooting in the dark here, just picking a word. But in this case, uh, they both tend to translate it quite a bit different. But, uh, but you see the idea there. The Bible wasn't written in English. And in general, especially with words that have technical meaning, like faith, believe, justified, you, in, in the epistles, you want those words to be consistently translated. You know? uh, so does that make sense? Or is that complete... Fog. <laughs> I, just, I just think that in that Romans 1 verse, eliminating to be, means that whole verse changes meaning. Yeah, it really does. So, and usually that's the reason. So, so we'll kind of table all this discussion about manuscript families and translation technique, but just to close the loop on that, when you're picking an English Bible, because the Bible wasn't written in English, Two considerations. What manuscript family, and this is mainly for the New Testament. The Old Testament was translated from the Masoretic text, and it's pretty consistent because the Jewish scribes were absolutely meticulous. In fact, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, when was that, 1947, I want to say? Uh, when they found those scrolls, they took our the copies that we had in our possession of old Hebrew scrolls. Remember, the, in the Jewish people wrote on scrolls in the Hebrew language, took it back a thousand years. It was unbelievable. The oldest Hebrew copies of the Bible that we had prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls find were 800 A.D. After that, we have some that now dated from 200 B.C. And what they discovered was the ones from 200 B.C. were identical to the ones from 800 B.C. There's very little textual criticism necessary in the Hebrew text. So it's mainly the New Testament that we're dealing with. Yeah. Where did they get the phrase in, uh, I believe it was 1 Samuel 3, that <clears throat> is talking about Hophni and Phineas that's only in the New King James Version? And it pretty much, it has like all, it has it, it all in italics. So like. in, about Hophni and Phineas and the, ta and the tabernacle when I, I it was stolen by the Philistines? No, not when it was stolen. It was before that. I don't oh. know if it was three. It might have been later. Well, if you can find it, I'll look it up and see if I can make sense of what's I'm going, going on there. Greek Bible right now, so I don't have that. Yeah, you, you keep looking for 1 Samuel in the Greek Bible, and if you find it, let me know. Yeah. Because it's not going to be in there, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not the one I gave you. Now, they do have a Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? Uh, the LXX? No, I just use a Bible. Yeah. But uh, you're right. It's called the LXX. And why do they call it the LXX? Septuagint. It's called the Septuagint, right? But it's often abbreviated LXX, and Septuagint means that too. But where there were 70 scholars that translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek after the Greek 
empire came into existence in 285 BC because the Jewish people at that time, the common language became Greek and they needed to study their scriptures in Greek. So, so there is a Greek in, translation of the Old Testament. Uh, but I'll, if you find the passage, we can look it up and I'll, I'll tell you. So, so two choices to make. What manuscript do they translate the New Testament from, the critical or the majority? And secondly, what's their technique? Are they striving for formal equivalence or what's called dynamic equivalence? Instead of word for word, it's thought for thought. <laughs> I prefer formal equivalence for study, and I prefer the New King James. Since that's my preference, I only have one English Bible to choose from, the New King James. Now, if I was a critical text advocate and, I, and, and a formal equivalent translation guy, I would, could choose NASB, ESV, Holman, several formal equivalents. But they, those others have limitations, too, that we can talk about another time. So, but let's go back to Romans 1, 7. Now, this is really unrelated to translation choices uh, because none of the translations have to be in there. But sometimes when we're translating the Greek, it's, it's, we're un, it's unclear what it means. And so to try to smooth it out in our English Bibles, the translators will put words in there. To read this phrase literally, and I'll put the Greek up there below it. Uh, so here we have, in, highlighted in green, the English and the Greek right below it. And you'll notice the two dots over here. That's because there are, there's no equivalent Greek phrase for to be. And that's why in the English they put it in italics because it wasn't in the original. So a wooden reading of this would be, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. So, you're right, it changes the meaning entirely. Another place, I mentioned this just recently, it's Galatians 3, I want to say 24, yeah. Uh, I mentioned this recently in a sermon, the famous verse, and a lot of people created a lot of bad teaching based on this, but the King James and the New King James say, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And you notice to bring us is in italics. It's not in the original, right? The only thing that's in the original is this preposition that's highlighted here in green, ace. Now, prepositions, kind of like in English and Greek, they can mean a variety of things. Ace can mean until is one of the options, not just to. And given the context here where Paul has been saying uh, earlier, uh, in verse 19, the law, what was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until, different word, the seed should come. It seems most logical that down here he's just referring to the same thing. Therefore, the law was our tutor to Christ. Not to bring us to Christ, but until Christ came is the idea. And that's true. Once Christ came, the church was founded, the Holy Spirit indwells believers permanently. We no longer need a tutor. Um, so the law doesn't lead people to Christ is the point. The law exposes our need for Christ. It exposes our sin. It showed our sin in high definition, but it didn't lead people to Christ. It was put in place until Christ came. But always be aware, when you, you don't have to know Greek, but whenever you see in your English Bible, if you're using a formal equivalent, which is why for study I recommend you know King James, New King James, New American Standard, be aware of anything in italics, because it may or may not be accurate. Um, yeah. 
I think it is First Samuel two seventeen in the New King James. Uh, in italics, somewhere in, in maybe it's just in my. Uh, it's probably yeah. just in my study Bible. I'm not seeing a uh, a note. I'd again. Old Testament doesn't have as many text-critical notes unless you're looking at the original Hebrew, and then it will. It's called the apparatus, which is all the notations of every uh, manuscript. Every time a manuscript is found, it's cataloged and given a number. And so when you're reading from the original Greek, I don't have my Greek text in print here, but it's going to have at the bottom, anytime there's a variant reading, it'll list every single manuscript that we know of in, in our collections that has reading A versus reading B. Uh, and you look at them and you kind of decide which one's the original. So, so yeah, I can't tell much from from this. So, all right. Yes? I'm wondering about Strong. Like, Strong, he, he, did he have his, his Greek based off of, like, the critical text or textus receptus or majority text or which one did he have it based on? Well, when he did it, it would have just been the Textus Receptus. That's all we, he had. So but he didn't have the critical text, you know, at that time. That was late 1800s. So um, everybody familiar with Strong's numbering system that he's referring to? So what that is, really fascinating. Let me see if I can show it here, actually. Uh, All right, so that's the Strong's numbering system. And what Strong did is he, again, this was before technology. You know, I don't know how these guys from the, you know, old days studied and wrote their books and stuff. You know, I see books like by J. Dwight Pentecost that thick and did it all by hand. I just think, I, I mean, I'm so embarrassed by how little I produce with the, what much that I have. But anyway, Strong went through every word in the Greek New Testament and gave it a number. And then he went through the King James and found every English word that corresponds to that same Greek word, and he put the numbers under it. So I can remember as a kid, my old Schofield Reference Bible and Strong's Concordance, doing simple word studies by looking at the word, say, justified here, and looking up that number in the back of Strong's Concordance and finding out, oh, that's the word dikaiosune or dikaiao, the, the verb for justified. Uh, and so he went through and meticulously did all that by hand. And for years, for decades, it was all the layman had who couldn't read Greek to study and do word studies. You'd, you'd look up the English word justified and you'd say, what was that Greek word? And you'd want to know how many times is that Greek word used. Well, you'd look up that number and it would show you everywhere that word is used based on that number. Well, the problem is, or not the problem, because the Lord really used that in the growth of the church. But obviously, since he did it all by hand, it was subject to human frailty. And, and there's known mistakes. He missed a few words here or there or miscounted here or there. And so with the age of digital technology... We don't need Strong's numbering system anymore because what we've got, as I just showed you, is the direct one-for-one -one equivalent with, you know, the Greek. So years ago, before I went to 
college, you know, I, a lot of the common Greek words, I had their equivalent Strong's number memorized. And just in my mind and thinking, oh, that's number, you know, 1280. And then I could go look that up. But over the 30, 40 years since then, you know, I've uh, recognized that it's just easier with digital technology to go straight word for word. I know Christ is Christos, you know, tutor is this and so forth. All right. So, you know, that's, that's interesting stuff to kind of be aware of. Obviously, as we study soteriology or the doctrine of salvation, um, it's important to, uh, you know, to, to recognize sometimes these interpretive issues can be related to understanding a little bit about the Greek, uh, the Greek text. Baptism. So. Baptism? What mean, it's, in the debate I had over baptism, I, you know, was going to use that 837 in Acts, but kind of hard to include it when it's, when it's not. Not there. Right. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, no, it, ma it makes a difference. Yeah, Jeffrey. Oh, I was wondering. You act surprised that I called on you. Yeah, I was thinking about it. Well, He's so used to me ignoring my hand. What did Tyndale get his Greek from? Or did he just go right off of the Vulgate? And where did Vulgate get it? So Jerome wrote the Latin Vulgate. He translated the Greek into... Latin, it's called the Vulgate, and that was 400s, I think, A.D. And so at the time, each of the, all of the, the history of our Bible transmission, they would just translate whatever Greek manuscripts we had in our possession at that time. And so the Textus Receptus, as, as it became to be identified, didn't even come into existence until the 1500s. Okay. Um, but as time went on, we had more and more manuscripts for two reasons. Obviously, over time, more and more of them are being copied, and also more and more of them are being discovered and found and you know, uncovered by archaeologists. So um, another interesting little fact, um, a guy named Stephanus in 1551 is the one who's credited with adding the chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles. And, it's, and I actually, in my... Uh, how we got our Bible series, I show some examples, some photocopies of, of some of his manuscripts. And according to historical tradition, he did that, a lot of that over a period of time as he was riding horseback back and forth from different libraries and churches and whatnot. And a lot of the strange verse divisions that we find in our Bible are said to be because his horse would hit a bump or sway and his pen would... his uh, pen would drop down on the manuscript in a weird spot and we I can I show you some examples of that where he wrote in the margin and stuff like that so that's why you'll hear preachers all the time say that the original text did not have chapter and verse and, and not only did it not but it did not until recently I mean in 2,000 years of church history the first 1,500 years we did not have chapters and verses so when you read the Bible you should read it for flow of thought, for contact, content grammatically, you know, antecedents of the pronouns and figure out, you know, what it says in its context and try not to be influenced by the verse and uh, chapter divisions. Um, how did they ever find stuff? I know. Well, and what's worse is the original documents, the autographs, not only were there no... Uh, chapter and verse divisions, there were no word divisions. 
because paper papyrus was at such a premium they they used every square inch so a lot of the scribal differences and the, and the textual differences come down to a different word division um, and i give examples of that in that series but um uh but yeah it's it's, it's fascinating stuff for sure so yeah Septuagint. I guess in my mind I was thinking it was translated into Greek because people outside of the Hebrew nation were wanting to learn. But is that not the case? No, that's true. It, that's probably mostly true. But still, you know, obviously the, the Hebrews were devout in their study of the Hebrew language and they did still pass it on, Deuteronomy 6 and so forth. But you're always a product of your culture. So even Jewish people living in you know in the roman empire in the greco-roman empire still learned greek you know and, and it became over time the common language it's kind of like a, a someone who immigrates to the united states from say mexico well the parents are speaking spanish they might before they die learn to speak a little english depending on how long they're here but their children that are raised here, of course, they're going to teach them Spanish, their native tongue, but they're going to also over time learn, you know, learn uh, English. And then several generations later, they probably only speak English, you know, just kind of depends. So, yeah, you're, that's a good point. It was not that they jettisoned the study of the Hebrew language, the Jews, but they needed a Greek version of the Hebrew Bible because that was the culture in which they lived for both themselves and for potential converts so so i'd hope we don't feel like we wasted a night because we didn't talk about um what the gospel is not i think i'll change the title slide for this on the video since it really has nothing to do with our series but uh but it's a good good discussion hopefully it you know was valuable picked up a few things and uh hopefully you're not confused there's a lot that we kind of threw at you and i'm trying to be as clear as i can but um just remember the two fundamental factors when choosing an English Bible. What manuscript did they translate from, the critical or the majority? And then uh, what's their technique? Are they trying to be word for word? Uh, or were they trying to paraphrase thought for thought? And uh, both have their place. There's no English Bible that is going to, you know, the Bible wasn't written in English, so they all have their limitations. So I, I use the NIV, I use the... New Living, I use some of those just for almost like a commentary to kind of help. But for study, you want a formal one. Yeah. Expanded translation by Kenneth S. Weiss. Yeah. Did you like that? And was it based on... It was definitely based on the Greek text. In fact, it was almost like a reverse interlinear, really. He really took the Greek and tried his best to come up with, you know, the key words for each Greek. It doesn't flow. Right. Right. Because it has to say what one line would say, it gives you two or three lines. It makes sense. So sometimes when we can't figure something out, we go to the translations. Yeah. And look at it because it, it does clarify. Yeah, and you know you'll see that in 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 the interlinear here because obviously the word order is different. Just like in Spanish, what the adjective comes yeah. after. Shirt sure, blue. Yeah, shirt blue. Uh, don't tell me camisa azul, right? Okay. Uh, but in, in, in English, it would be blue shirt, right? 
So same thing in Greek. So if you look here, I put up the interlinear again. See these numbers? This indicates the corresponding English word order. So if I read this in its wooden literalness, it would be, therefore the law was tutor our was, therefore the law, therefore the law tutor our was to Christ. Therefore the law tutor our was to Christ. If you read it, if you just translated it. But obviously in English, we adjust the word order to reflect English grammar. But it's still word for word. And that's what this is trying to show you. You know, hosta is, the, is therefore the uh, article the, ha, namas, law, gegamen, was, you know, amon, our, paidagagos. Remember we talked about paideia in the last several weeks in church. That's tutor or that's a instruction, uh, chastening, training. This is another form of that word. So, um, yeah, word order matters. And Weiss, I think, was not concerned with that. So, yeah. Yeah. You ever think back to the, the fact that the languages were confused and how interesting it would have been if they weren't? Yeah. And, and does it make you wonder what that original language was and what our heavenly language will be? Um, do you think we'll still throw on other languages or do you think we'll just probably just stick to one? No, I don't think so. I think uh, human languages are a factor of earth and time, space, and matter. I think we'll all be one in heaven and you know we'll sing a new song whatever that'll be but we'll all be singing it so um yeah i don't think we'll have that kind of language distinction in heaven because we'll be one people of god ultimately yeah yeah Yeah, so for as many of us, as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. So um, were baptized, that's what that error means. That's, you know, yeah, is the verb. Let's see, it's a aorist passive indicative. Um, so were baptized. And, and it, they inserted the of you uh, here because it's sort of implied. It's not like they're inserting it to try to smooth it out. It's implied for as many as were baptized, as many of you, the ones I'm talking to is the idea here. So there's, that's why that's not italicized. Uh, for as many as were baptized into Christ, and again, have put on all three of those words is this one word here. And a deuce... To be exact. So, uh, and then Christon. So, yeah, that's what those arrows mean. It's just that sometimes one, especially the verbs, word in Greek requires multiple words to translate it. So. Well, good. So, um, we will continue next week. Wednesday night's our Bible study, so we, we're not locked into discussing anything. I was ready to go with uh, the next thing, which was uh, surrendering, I think. Uh, but anyway, whatever it was, we'll pick it up next time. So, all right. Awesome. See you guys.